And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And um, we're, we're going to go all the way to the Bronx uh, for this Brooklyn Dodgers perspective, and um, I'm very excited to do so. And, and, and also uh, just want to say uh, to all of our Jewish listeners. Uh, as well as give uh, condolences to the uh, the Ginsburg family of uh, who and Miss Ruth Bader Ginsburg was from Brooklyn, so I just wanted to uh, mention that uh, uh, condolences. Very sad news last night. But uh, without further ado, let me bring on my guests. I'm very excited to uh, first. I'm going to welcome uh, Julie Alexandria to the program, and she is a, a sports and entertainment host as well as a. MLB sideline reporter. I'm greatly appreciating you coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks so much. And uh, also her father, uh, Professor Don Schwartz, uh, who will help us uh, kind of uh, uh, go back to to what it was like to be a a fan of the Dodgers in Yankee territory. Uh, Mr. Schwartz, I'm greatly appreciative for you joining us as well. Well, I'm very happy to be here and uh, happy to talk about what it was like uh, growing up in the Bronx as a Brooklyn Dodger fan. So before we get uh, uh, to the, the nitty-gritty of this podcast, I'm, I'm going to first go to you, Julie, uh, and, and to kind of uh, when, whenever we have uh, a, a, the first time a guest is on, I always like you to deliver to the audience uh, your personal history as well as your personal baseball history, how you kind of got uh, intertwined in this sport. <laughs> well, they're kind of one and the same. Um, my personal history, you know, I grew up, um, well, I'm originally from New York. My parents, as you will hear from my dad's perspective, are from the Bronx. And I was born in Manhattan, grew up in Queens for the first five years of my life, which definitely came in handy later on down the line because I was sort of welcomed into the Mets fan family once they knew that I was from Belrose, they were like, oh, Belrose, amazing. And so that was, like, really great to have in my back pocket. But they would say, what, what school did you go to? And, like, I left before I was of school age, really. We left, we moved to White Plains for a year, and then we moved out to Orange County, California, which is really where I grew up. So if I'm talking to people from New York, I say I'm from New York. And if I'm talking to people from the West Coast, I say I'm from Orange <laughs> County. So it just depends. But um, I always wanted to be an actress. I was obsessed with musical theater growing up. And, you know, I baseball, people will always ask me, like, were you a sports fan growing up? And the earliest memories I have of baseball in our house was my parents putting in a VHS tape of the 86 Mets, which, again, also a lot of great collateral and insurance moving forward as I joined the best broadcast team was having that in my back pocket of like I grew up with the names of like Keith Hernandez and Jesse Orozco and the 86 Mets all within my household because my parents were Mets fans and they were from Queens and they you know lived in Queens and they were Mets fans so that was also very helpful later on but I was into musical theater and acting and singing and dancing and the minute I could I moved to New York City at like 20 years old and I wanted to make it on Broadway and I was auditioning a ton and I did some off Broadway. I did some tours. I did some, then my career kind of went into more TV hosting and I 
booked this incredible job hosting a CBS online show, CBS Interactive, and it was 2008, and it was uh, top of my game. I was like, my career is going places. I was so excited, and then the economic downturn happened, and you know, everybody was reeling from the 2008 um, crash and the subprime mortgage um, crisis, and everybody's shows were getting canceled. Out of self-preservation, I turned to sports because it was the one recession-proof entity out there that performers could still work in the entertainment TV industry. You just had to know your stuff. And so, again, people say, well, where did you go to journalism school? Did you, are you a sports journalist? Did you go to Newhouse? Like, no, I'm an actor, first and foremost. And I pretty much used that improv and and all of that that you know that training into live tv because nothing prepares you for live tv than doing live theater and there are many parallels that i found between acting and broadway and professional sports because a baseball game is incredibly dramatic and it is no greater stage than a sports game so it, it was it was an interesting transition i went over i did a sports trivia game show called beer money for sny and then I ended up hosting Mets Weekly, uh, which is how we met. And, uh, and then after Mets Weekly, I ended up um, doing sideline for college football. And then I did a couple of entertainment shows and then on MTV. And then I came back into baseball doing sideline for the Washington Nationals, which made headlines with all of the Gatorade dumps. And that's pretty much what I'm known for now. Like when people Google my name, that's what comes up, which is <laughs> hilarious. Like all that training and it's Gatorade. But, um, but it was fun, and it was all in fun, and that team was incredible. Um, and then I ended up doing more entertainment news back in New York. I kind of bounced around a little bit, um, doing commercials. I do voiceovers, um, books on tape, video game voiceovers, Grand Theft Auto, Verizon, Walmart, McDonald's. I've done all those. And then um, in 2016, I ended up coming back to the West Coast to um, do sideline for the Padres. And this is where I ended up. I ended up meeting my husband here, and now we have a almost two-year-old, and I've relocated, but um, I kept my place in Manhattan, and, and I, I still miss New York, but the sunshine is really great. Well, I, I hope that everything is uh, well and dandy and, and healthy with you guys out there. Um, you know, of course, of course, it's it, we try to get distracted and not talk about COVID, but you, you really can't do it. And there's just so many different, you know, as somebody with theater background myself, I, I it, it's like I want to have a whole other podcast with you regarding the the just what you just said about live theater versus live television. But I, I, the direction I want to go first, of course, is is back to the Dodgers legacy. And after uh, which, you know, since you do this for a living, I will ask you to pass it over to your dad. Uh, and if you could just kind of within the world of the Mets and within the world of, of baseball that you grew up, that your, your parents raised you in, what was your understanding of the Dodgers legacy through that? It's funny. I talk about the VHS tape of the Mets. My other memory is having summers at home here in Southern California and listening to Vince Scully on the radio because we would always be playing outside, my brother and I. And so when I would hear Vince Scully's voice, it meant summer. 
it was synonymous with summer. There was no school. It was long days outside in the backyard, and that was signaled by Finn Scully's voice. And that was something because I feel like my parents always had the game on in the background, whether it was like on the radio or on a TV somewhere in the house, but we were outside. And I feel like there was always a baseball game on in my house. And, and that made the transition um, very easy, which I appreciate. And my dad is probably the biggest baseball fan that I know and someone who is very influential in my life. So it is my honor to be on this podcast with my dad, Don, Dr. Don Force, who is an avid uh, Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And I know that the Dodgers will never be or mean the same to him. But, um, Dad, I'm so glad you're here on the show. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to be here with you on the show. And um, let's do some Dodger talk. Let's do some Dodger talk. So it, I'm going to ask the same question to you to give our audience uh, the, the uh, personal history as well as your baseball fandom history. Okay, well, um, as you mentioned, uh, I grew up in the Bronx, and um, from my earliest memories, for whatever reasons, I loved the Brooklyn Dodgers, hated the Yankees. The Yankees, to me, were like uh, general motors. They were like automatons. They, they were terrific players, but not terribly interesting, whereas the Dodgers seemed to be more of a blue-collar type team, and I was attracted to them. And... Um, when I went to high school, um, I played on the uh, James Monroe High School baseball team. And um, when I was a senior, Ed Cranepool uh, was a sophomore on that same team. And he went on to play for the Mets. Um, then I, I went off to uh, college and um, I uh, went for a Ph.D. in uh, history but I continued to um, love baseball and follow baseball. And um, when I uh, took a job at uh, California State University, Long Beach, we moved to California. But because the Dodgers broke my heart when they moved to California and I was uh, just a kid, uh, I couldn't forgive them. And so to this day, I'm still not a L.A. Dodger fan. Um, and um, I was uh, teaching um, in uh, California, and then when I turned 50, um, my sister gave me a birthday present of going to the Dodger Fantasy Camp in Vero Beach, and so when I did that, I was able to meet my boyhood heroes. Uh, I was able to meet Ralph Branker and Duke Snyder and Clem Labine, and when I was there, I was approached by someone who told me that there is a, um, a baseball league for uh, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s in California. And so ever since then, I've actually been playing competitive hardball. And <clears throat> it was a nice balance between um, – teaching history at the university, and then on the weekends uh, playing baseball. So that's um, pretty much my uh, uh, <laughs> thumbnail bio. And, uh, of course, along the way, uh, my wife, Gloria, and I had uh, two children, and we're very proud of them, uh, Julie and Jesse. And um, we're very happy that uh, Julie 
took the job with the Padres because it brought her back to the West Coast. And now um, we see her on a regular basis, along with our grandson. And the Padres are interesting within the post uh, era of what I'm I'm discussing because I believe the the early part of the Padres was run by a Dodgers executive, a longtime Dodgers executive, Buzzy Bavasi. And I thought about that when uh, uh, we you know saw uh, I was doing the post earlier, and that's the fact that you worked for the Padres. Um, so uh, I'm going to go back to you, John, first to uh, go into some details. Um, you know, what, what, when you're, you're talking about your Dodger fandom, who were your favorite players? Um, was, was there any experiences at Ebbets Field? Um, what, what are some of the things you remember about that era? Yeah, um, well, living in the Bronx, it was um, kind of difficult to get to Ebbets Field. It was about an hour and a half uh, ride on the subway. But in... Um, 1953, uh, I had the opportunity to be on a pregame show called the Happy Felton Knothole Gang, uh, and this was a show where uh, kids in the little in Little League would get to meet uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and um, there would be a tryout, and so. Um, you would be on the field and one of the Brooklyn Dodgers would be throwing baseballs to you and uh, you would then uh, catch it and return it. And, and there was a competition between uh, three members of the little league. And so um, I had that opportunity to meet Duke Snyder. Um, I remember talking to him and looking up at him as if he was a deity and um I have very vivid memories of the first time that I went to Ebbets Field. Um, the grass seemed to be so vibrant, and the railings were uh, a deep red, and the seats were a dark green, and it was just uh, something that stuck with me. Um, I, I think I uh, went to about four or five uh, games at Ebbets Field before they left after the uh, 19. 57th season, I think it was. Yes, no, it was. It was 1957, and and it's. It, hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, it was 1957, mm-hmm. and it's interesting you, you saying that you you held it against the Dodgers, um, you know, in terms of the Los Angeles side of things, since you were out there and. You know, what I've picked up on, I think Willie Mays and the fact that, you know, the Dodgers were the most popular team at the time, uh, basically in baseball. You know, more arguably, I think they were the most profitable team more so than the Yankees at the time. And they seemed, because of, of how it felt like a slight to an entire community, uh, uh, giant fans seemed to stick around. And, I, and it seems like Willie Mays had something to do with that, too. Uh, so how did you feel be like, like it seems like you were basically part of the Brooklyn community annexed out in the Bronx, you know, how, how was like, describe that feeling as, as the information came out that Walter O'Malley was taking this team away from you. Oh, well, it, it, it was, it was absolutely devastating. I mean, it was, um, it, it was as if, it was as if somebody was taking away your favorite toy or if, as you got older uh your favorite girlfriend <laughs> um 
I mean, it was something that, uh, as a young boy, uh, it seemed like such a gross injustice that how could this be? Uh, you know, but later, as an adult, when you look at some of the reasons for the, uh, I mean, the, uh, the, the attendance had been falling off through the 1950s, and um, the Dodgers wanted to build a dome stadium, and um, Robert Moses refused uh, to to go along with it, at least in Brooklyn. He wanted the, the stadium to be built in Queens, and Walter O'Malley didn't want that, and O'Malley looked for greener pastures, and that's why the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. But um, none of that made sense to me in uh, 1957. It, it was uh, it, it was just a heartbreak. And, um, you know, even today when I uh, talk to some friends who were Brooklyn Dodger fans, we all feel the same way. I remember in the Dodger fantasy camp, yeah. uh, many of the people there were Dodger fans, and uh, we were all uh, uh, reminiscing about how difficult it was for us when the Dodgers left Brooklyn. And with some of those Dodger players who who have their own, uh, you know, varying opinions on both Walter O'Malley as well as as the move, uh, Julie, uh, you know, he mentioned the the Knot Hall Gang, which was very much a, um, you know, the 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 it, it basically set the stage for what you were able to do, what you have made a career. Have you uh, have you looked back at some of these early? Because I, I know I sent you a clip of, of a 25-minute episode, and some of it is just very awkwardly done. And it's just so interesting to see the way everything has, has evolved uh, when it comes to sideline reporting. What, what, what is your uh, – uh, do, you, do you have any affinity for the history of, of the, the work that you do? <laughs> it, it's so funny because we were actually just watching the episode together right before we jumped on this call, and – I, I looked at my dad and I was like, do people really actually talk like that? Like <laughs> there was almost like a caricature. Um, and so as in the industry, we would call it so hosty, which is like, hi, we're here or presentational or announcery as they call it. Um, but, you know, I think there is always a need and an, a thirst for knowledge that goes beyond just the X's and O's. And I think that's where, um, where we come in. And, you know, as someone who really had no experience in this industry before I kind of got thrown into it, literally, I was like, all right, I have to take a point of view here. My point of view is going to be from the fans. That is what drove me to ask every question, to write every report, to write every story, and to sort of inquire of the players, of the managers, of the coaches, which was if I were a fan and I was watching this game, what would I want to know? Yeah, I can see balls and strikes, but what do I want to know about the guy, about the batter, about the pitcher, about this duel, about whatever it is? I mean, I, I sort of came at it from that perspective, but – it's interesting because sideline reporting, there's different styles, right? Sideline reporting in football is very different than it is in baseball. And I know they say there's no sidelines in baseball, so we call it on-field reporting in baseball. Um, <laughs> but it's very, it's, it's very different from, from where you sit. And, and in, some, in some stadiums, you know, depending when you're on the road or who your home team is, in, in certain stadiums, you are literally in the dugout. Sometimes you're in the photo well. 
um, on the first or third base line, depending on how the you know stadium is situated. And and sometimes you're literally there, so you are feeling the same energy as these guys, right? So if they're winning, you know, you're, you're feeling the positive energy. If they're losing, you are also feeling that energy as well. And you're traveling with the team. Like that was something that I don't know I was truly prepared for. And it's funny because when I got the offer to do the Washington Nationals job in 2013, um, it was in a different capacity. It was doing every game. Whereas before when I was with the Mets, I was doing a magazine show. So I would, I mean, and, Sam, you remember, we would only really go to, it was City Field, I guess. It was the first year at City mm-hmm. Field, so it was 2009. We would really only yeah. go to City Field maybe once or twice a week, and we would, you know, be there for BP. We would sit in the dugout, wait until Jose Reyes would give us a minute, and then we would leave, right? <laughs> so, like, that was our, <laughs> that was my thing. And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> and then I, I took the job with the Nationals, and it was like, no, you are literally there at 1 p.m. You're at the ballpark. You're in the clubhouse. You're, you know, there during BP, pregame, the game, and then you've got postgame, and then you've got manager's conference, and then you've got MVP, and you've got starting pitcher, and you've got to do, you know, there was so much more work entailed. And I remember my dad, dad, I'm putting you on the spot here, but I remember when I told you that I got the job <laughs> with the Washington Nationals, they made me an offer, you said, don't do it. Because you said the schedule, <laughs> you were like the schedule is a grind, and I was like, yeah, but I I think it'll be a good idea. And you were like, don't do it. You're not going to enjoy it. It's not going to be fun. But you know what? I I did it anyway, and I'm glad that I did it. Um, because and they, can, I, can, I can I just say real quick? Can I just say real quick that the first time I met you, you were wearing. Uh, a throwback Washington Senators hat, and I, I really like that. By the way, <laughs> you wait, I was. Yeah, when when we first met in Hell's Kitchen, uh, you after I, I saw you doing an OK Magazine show, and because I was a, a connected to the the Mets from blogging perspective, I um, I was working the liquor store, uh, uh, and I saw you when I saw you later. Uh, you were wearing the Washington Nationals hat. I, I did, you were wearing the Washington Senators hat, and it was just funny because I knew you was a Mets fan. And it, it's interesting to hear you talk about that. Your dad was talking about the schedule. Did he ever bring up, like, you know, they, I believe that the Washington Nationals, um, the the it was basically budding from the, the rivalry perspective at the time. But, of course, they were, you know, they, they especially now, they're probably the main arch nemesis other than the, the Phillies, who who right now are kind of coming back around to being good. So, what, what was that like? Did you get any? Did you get any any um, flack from a lot of Mets fans who had known you uh, in the Mets days? I did a little bit. And to to speak on that Phillies note, you know, when I when we were doing Mets Weekly um, in 2009-2010, the only road trips they would really take me on, they would go to Philly and they, you know, just like in divisional stuff. So they would do Philly and they would do Washington. They would take me to Washington, no problem. Brian Schneider had then got traded down there. So I already, it was friendly territory, but the Phillies, they wouldn't even take me in 2009-2010 because they said it was such a hostile environment when the Mets would come to visit that they didn't want people to throw things at me while I was doing stand-up in the stadium. And I was like, is it really that bad? I had no clue. I had never been to a game in in, uh, Philly, and and I I had no idea. And they were like, yeah, we're not going to take you. So then I fast forward, I get the job in 2013, and Mets fans were definitely like, 
you know, I have to say, and, and Mets fans are like the best fan base in the world. I'm going to give them the, the those big props. Um, they've been through a lot. But um, they were actually really cool because they told the Washington Nationals fans, they were like, you're getting a good one. And my whole thing was like, hey, I just got traded. At least I'm staying in the NLE. But they were like, <laughs> they, I was like, I'm like a player. I got traded. What are you going to do? I got a contract. Like, what can you say? But um, it was, they were very cool. There was no animosity. I think when the Washingtons came to City Field, it was really awesome because there were a lot of Mets fans in the stands that remembered me from a few years back. And they were like, Julie. And that was like a homecoming for me. And that was really cool. So I think it helped rather than hindered. It, it was, it was really, it was nice. And uh, Don, I want to go back to you at some point, but I, I want to tell you, I have this memory, Julie, of you with, um, with Matt Cerrone in 2009 during spring training coming, basically you guys were talking about how razor shines during all of, all of the drills was constantly talking about a ring and how he, he was basically getting you guys pumped up for, for especially coming off of the two collapses was getting you guys pumped up for, you know, uh, uh, the 2009 season and the 2009 season just from my own personal perspective, is the worst season I've ever been through as a baseball fan. <laughs> and, like, I have, yeah, a very inf- right, I have a very infamous relationship with that season, even though, like, I was going to Met games more than ever before. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there about that memory about you guys talking about Razor Shines and getting pumped for the ring that never came. <laughs> I mean, that was, I, I look back at 2009, I'm like, that was the season of injuries, right? Everybody went down. I mean, I, I, I can't recall what happened to the training staff after 2009, but I was like, wh- how is this possible? Every single guy was hurt at some point. I mean, it was almost, it, it was almost laughable in a, a very unfunny way. Um, but just to, just to throw it back, you had mentioned the Washington Senators hat. So I wore a Washington Senators hat because my pseudo name, when we would check into hotels, which I learned very early after getting hazed by a bunch of the guys on the Nationals team, like just stealing my room keys. And, you know, they, they haze you when you're new. Um, I had to have a fake name to go with my room number. Because when you check into the hotels with the team, the, the guys go first and then media and production have to wait. And so I chose Walter Johnson as my pseudonym. So when I would check in, I was Walter Johnson on the check-in list, and then I always wore the Washington Senator hat. So that's where that came from. <laughs> that's great. Good, good senator to pick uh, for sure. And um, right. Don, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to you uh, and go. Let's go all the way back to the beginnings of the Mets, uh, since we're talking so, so uh, about the Mets history right now. You know, uh, of course, we we do like to talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers legacy within the Mets ranks. Um, I, I do believe that the, the new owner should do a better job of also incorporating the background that the Giants provide, especially considering the interlocking NY. We, we could go on about that. But I want to talk about, from your perspective, where you have seen that Dodgers heart and, and sometimes that the, the daffiness boys, as they were known in the 30s, um, what, what exactly, where have you seen that legacy continue with the National League franchise that is now in New York? Well, uh, l- let me give a little um, historical perspective. So the Dodgers left after the 1957 season, and there was no National League baseball in New York for four years. 
from 58 to 62. And what happened was they uh, began to uh, air games from the Pittsburgh Pirates and the St. Louis Cardinals. So for those four years, if you were a National League baseball fan in New York, you saw some games from the Pirates and the Cardinals. Then in 1962, the Mets were established. And as everybody knows, they were absolutely awful. But after four years of not having a National League baseball team in New York, everyone was starved. And so they were beloved, even though um, they were awful. And uh, Casey Stingle was the manager, and um, he gave some comic relief. Uh, They asked him uh, why they chose Choo Choo Coleman as the first draft pick on the uh, on the Mets, and Choo Choo Coleman was a catcher. And Casey Stingle explained, well, if you don't have a catcher, then the ball rolls to the backstop. And so that set the tone <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> for, for the comical Mets. And um, it was almost as if, you know, the, the worse they played, the more you loved them. <laughs> um, it, I mean, nobody had any expectations that that they were going to be good. After all, the, the team was stocked with players that other teams didn't want, and um, so they they, they they were absolutely awful. Uh, but I was particularly interested in them because, um, as I mentioned, Ed Crample was a teammate of mine in high school, and. Um, He was signed by the Mets right out of high school, and when he was 17, he was playing with the Mets, so um, I I got interested in that, and um, I just loved having a National League team after the Dodgers left, and so um, I became an avid Mets fan, and there was enough... um, there was enough connection for me between the Mets and the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, Duke Snyder, my hero, uh, later uh, played for the Mets. Gil Hodges, who was the first baseman for the Brooklyn Dodgers um, in in the 50s. Uh, He became uh, the Mets manager uh, when the Mets won the World Series. And so it was an easy transition for me uh, to go from being a Brooklyn Dodger fan to being a New York Mets fan. I think this is uh, a, a good place to talk about Tom Seaver, uh, you know, considering uh, we have unfortunately – it's just been – what a trying year, you guys. Uh, Don, I'm going to start with you, and, and Julie, you can pick it up whenever he's done. Um, I'll, I'll start with you on your recollections about Tom, uh, and uh, Julie, once, once you pick it up, I'm just curious if you ever got a chance to meet him during your time with the Mets. Go ahead, Don. Well, um, Tom Seaver, I think his first year was 1967. And the Mets were a pretty awful team even then. But you can see that this guy was a real talent. Uh, Of course, what everybody remembers about Tom Seaver was the way um, his left knee would hit the ground when he would would throw his pitch. Um, And... um, uh, he was so much better than any other pitcher on the team. Uh, and you almost felt sorry that this, this guy, who was this tremendous talent, was playing 
for such a woeful uh, franchise at that time. Uh, but nobody in 1967 would have ever predicted that two years later he would be pitching for a World Series championship. Um, and, of course, um, he was really the franchise for so long. And um, when the Mets uh, traded him, uh, that was another heartbreak. <laughs> um, it, it, it was unfathomable to uh, to Mets fans that the that the team would ever consider trading Tom Seaver. And if I'm, my memory serves me correctly, uh, they actually traded him twice. They traded him, then they brought him back, and then they traded him again. And um, well, like, may, may I just throw uh, it out there that what they what unfortunately happened, Don, was that they left him unprotected, and the White Sox claimed him mm. uh, in 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 oh, just a, a a it was a, a forty man roster thing. <laughs> it's weird. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. And and then he also pitched for Cincinnati, did he not? Right, and that's who he was traded to in '77. Right. Okay. Right. So. Um, Again, uh, it just seemed, um, you know, uh, unreasonable that the Mets would uh, would part with him. And, of course, you know, for the, the longest time, no one ever pitched a no-hitter for the Mets. But when Siva was traded, he pitched a no-hitter. I think it was for the White Sox. Um, and um, <clears throat> but by the uh, by the end of the 1960s, the Mets, uh, had a championship team, and um, then the the whole aura changed. You know, they were they were no longer the beloved hapless Mets, but they were a legitimate team that you now could root for and and have expectations that um, you know that they'd be in the pennant race, uh, which they were. And of course, they went to the World Series again in 1973. Unfortunately, uh, they they lost that that uh, World Series. But um, through the 1970s and, and 1980s, uh, I was an avid Mets fan. And as Julie pointed out, um, we, um, we moved, my wife and I uh, moved to Queens, and that's where Julie was born. And um, the, uh, we, we remember very clearly uh, the 1986 World Series when uh, Bill Buckner, let the ball go between his legs and brought joy to uh, Mets fans the world over. Go ahead, Julie. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. To, so to answer your question, um, I, yeah, I was so unfortunate when I read the news about Tom Seaver. Um, I never had the opportunity to meet him um, during my time with the Mets. Unfortunately, there were a few. Um, there were a few events where some of the older players had, had come to, and I'm trying to remember exactly. I, I believe one was in Connecticut at a, um, at like a designer clothing store called like Roberts or Rogers or something like that. And I think Rusty Staub came. Um, so he was one of the, the only, um, you know, past generation Mets that I had, you know, veterans that I had met. Um, but I never got to meet Tom Fever. Um, I had heard so many stories, and I know recently Tom Brady had tried to trademark the Tom Terrific, 
And immediately I had this like gut visceral reaction, like, no way, you can't have that. Like, no, no. And, and not just because I, not just because I'm not a Pats fan, but I was just like, what? Like the, just the hubris, the audacity, like, come on, dude. And I love that they shot it down and they said, you know, there's only one Tom terrific and that's Tom Seaver. So um, I do, I do know that he was living in Northern California. He had a winery, he was living on a vineyard and he had put out um, a, few vintages, which I, I thought was always so nice when I would hear about his retirement. I was like, that's the way to do it. Like you have this incredible career and then just go to Napa and live on a winery with your family. Like it's, it's great. But yeah, unfortunately, um, I was sad to hear of his passing this year. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's really unfortunate just to say as well that the relationship between him and the Wilpons just wasn't stronger uh, you know, and, and the way it all went down with the, the fact that there's there's not a statue yet there, and it's probably going to happen under new ownership instead of Wilpons, who wanted to do it this year, but of course, uh, extraneous circumstances occurred. Um, it, it's it's unfortunate that wasn't the case, but all we can do now is just you know soak up what we had and and continue whenever we want to take a look at, at how masterful he was on that mound. So uh, I, I forget whether I had uh, yet to talk about Tom Seaver since the passing on this podcast, but I uh, definitely needed to mention that. Um, Julie, I want to go back to acting a little bit and kind of the, the parallels, you know, even though this is not exactly the subject matter of the era that we're going for, you talked about the dramatics of baseball, the dramatics of sports in general, um, and comparing live theater to live TV. So there's a lot of different places I could go, but the first thing that I thought was just the way that you have to play to the back of the room at first when you're talking about theater, but then when you're doing those those, uh, uh, live TV reporting, you have to kind of you're not trying to hit the back row of, of the, uh, the bleacher seats. You're, you're just trying to get to the TV audience. So how was that transition for you? And have, have you wanted to keep up acting? Would you ever go back to it? What, what's your stance uh, right now? <laughs> well, it's a really, it's a really tough transition to make because you're right. When you're on stage, you are bigger than life. You are performing for the back of the room, depending on, you know, what the piece is. And, it's very difficult to take that down and to bring it down to a very intimate level where you are literally just speaking to quote unquote, a friend, which is again, another industry term that they give actors when they want it to be a little more conversational. They say, just like you're talking to a friend. So, in my mind, again, going from the fan perspective, I would look at the camera and pretend that I was sitting watching the game in somebody's living room and we're just talking about it. Like imagine watching the game with your best friend and they point out a play and then you say, yeah, you know what's crazy was his wife just had a baby. He just came back from paternity leave and then he hits a home run. Like how cool is that? Like, you know, something (laughs) like that. So it just became sort of a, it just sort of became a, a, difference of delivery as far as going back to acting yeah I'd be open to it um I I always enjoyed it I loved hosting I'm currently um the west coast correspondent for La Vida Baseball which is an entity and a platform that focuses on the Latino experience in baseball and a lot of the Latin guys from Latin American countries who come over here to play and just how different that perspective and that journey is from a guy who gets drafted 
at a Cal State Long Beach or Cal State Fullerton, you know, and, and gets to go and play in his hometown or somewhere else that's very familiar, what it's like for these guys to come over. And so we interview players and we, um, we give sort of our perspective. And I host that with Ozzy Guillen Jr. and Jennifer Mercedes. So we have a Venezuelan, a Dominican, and a Puerto Rican on that call. So that's, that's a really <laughs> interesting perspective if you're, if you're looking for a different way to look at baseball. Um, and also to highlight some of the guys that don't get a lot of love from the American media. Um, because up until 2016, there were no mandated translators in clubhouses, which is crazy to think. It used to fall on the shoulders of the veteran uh, Latin guys who did who were bilingual and they would then on top of their playing duties and their training and all of that they would have to then translate for the media if they wanted to speak to a younger Latin player who did not speak the language so um, a lot of politics in there as well but uh, that so La Vida Baseball definitely check that out that's my shameless plug for our show that's um, great yeah. great shameless plug <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but as far as sports being dramatic, you know, again, as someone who did not enter the realm of sports journalism and someone who sort of got thrown into the mix and just kind of had to figure it out on her own, put it in terms that I could understand. So I would look at the baseball field and I'm like, okay, the pitcher is the star of the show. The infielders, the, the infielders are your, you know, your supporting cast. And the outfielders are your chorus. And physically, that's literally how it is set up. If you look at a baseball diamond, right, if you look at an aerial view of a baseball game, like that's the same as, as a Greek tragedy. <laughs> if you're going to look at what the, you know, what, what it looks like at the, at the Acropolis, okay? So, like, you have the, you've got your main character. Especially when you're watching the Mets. And, I know. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> Especially this year. Um, hey, they could still make it wild card. Um, but they, uh, hey, yeah, I mean, they don't keep losing 12 to two. I know. Oh my gosh. Those inflated video game numbers. It's crazy. It's, it's so 2020. Um, and the seven inning double headers. I don't get me started. Okay. So, but that is basically <laughs> how I put it in terms of being able to understand. I was like, okay, so, you know, the, the real through line here is what the pitcher is going through. So let's start with him, right? And and also because the pitcher is like your most cerebral position, right, if you're going to break it down like that. So that's kind of how I came at it. And I'm like, this is so much drama. And then you take into account on who played for what team and who has pre-existing relationships with which team. And, and even like, look at what happened with Fernando Tatis and not to make it about the Padres here, but look what happened to Fernando Tatis and, and his manager, Jace Tingler and their, uh, their general manager, AJ Preller with the Texas Rangers and not swinging three Oh, right. In, in that game in the later innings as they were up. I mean, had they not been already connected to the Rangers organization, would they have said that? You know, like that, that's sort of the drama that I'm always trying to dig for. And that's hmm. sort of the, the angle that I'm always going for. So to me, games are incredibly dramatic and they are just as dramatic as any staging, any stage show. So uh, I, I'm going to um, ask you uh, about this particular musical entity and uh, I'm going to follow up with you, Don about uh, kind of that era's pop culture. And I'm wondering, Julie, if you've ever heard the original 
a Broadway recording of uh, Damn Yankees, which ironically came out the year that the Dodgers finally beat the Yankees. And of course, it was about the Senators, ironically, which is another tie-in. Um, but I'm wondering if you've ever heard those recordings, and, uh, and then, Don, I'll follow up with you. The only original recording I have heard from that would be Lola's song, Whatever Lola Wants. Um, that was a song that I became familiar with from high, like around high school, I would say, because I went to, I, I attended the Orange County High School of the Arts, which is a, a big um, arts high school here in Southern California. And that was a song that like all the hot girl dancers would sing. I never sang that song, but that was like what the, <laughs> the very seductive, like, I was kind of a nerd, but that was like the, the very seductive song that all those like, you know, very forward thinking high school girls would sing. And I've actually never seen a staged production of the show. Um, but, but yeah, that, that is sort of my only, kind of my only tie in for that, but I have heard the original um, recording. It's great. Well, there, there's some uh, other songs that are just so uh, it, to what baseball's about, uh, uh, just with, with the, the opening overture and six months out of every year uh, is such a great song that also encapsulates what baseball felt like, I believe, in that era. And, uh, Don, I'm going to go to you with that. And, and, yeah, I'll send that to you, uh, Julie, in terms of, like, Spotify or Apple or whichever you would like. Don, do you, do you remember that show? Do you remember that recording? What was your Broadway experience like? If you've ever, if you ever, went, you know, what, when, I'm guessing you've been to a show before. So when did you uh, first go to a show? Uh, and, and what, what was that like for you? Did, you know, what was, what was your pop culture world like at the time in 1955? <laughs> well, um, before I, uh, go back to that i just want to say julie uh you've given me a new perspective on baseball I, i've never heard that, <laughs> uh, the idea that the pitcher is the star and uh, and physically from an aerial view the pitcher is in the center of everything and so i want to thank you for that yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll never look at baseball the same <laughs> that was uh, as far as my uh pop culture um perspectives in the uh, 1950s um <clears throat> My sister was a rockette, and so um, that was the extent of my connection with show business. Um, I, I don't remember ever going to a Broadway show uh, when I was growing up in the Bronx. Um, <clears throat> and as far as um, Damn Yankees, uh to me, damn Yankees was a phrase that I used on a regular basis, and I wasn't even aware that there was a Broadway show with that title. Uh, but I've seen the show ever since, um, you know, looking back on it. And, um, you know, uh, I agree that it's a, uh, it's a very interesting perspective on baseball. Uh, of course, the, what I do remember is that the Washington Senators of the 1950s was the Mets of the 19, early 1960s. They, they were the worst team. And the fact that a uh, uh, there would be a deal with the devil so that the Washington uh, Senators would beat the Yankees was a rather fascinating concept. But um, I really didn't have any personal connection with the uh, with the pop culture as it related to baseball when I was growing up. So uh, I can't offer much perspective on that. 
So outside of baseball, you know, were you a fan of music? Were you a fan of movies? And, and what are some of your memories of the era in, in regards to that? Well, um, certainly uh, I was a, a product of the 1950s and um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the movies that, uh, that I remember um, are um, movies that uh, were basically uh, certainly on television, lots of Westerns. That, that, that was the prime fare uh, in the 1950s. Um, I wasn't a big movie fan uh, in, in the 1950s, so I, I don't remember uh, a whole lot of that. Uh, but I was, I was really, even as a, uh, a youngster, I was interested in the politics of the 1950s. And um, so uh, I remember some of the uh, um, major events of the, during the Eisenhower administration, the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, and the launching of Sputnik. So th- those are the things that uh, seem to uh, um, attract my attention uh, in, in the 1950s. But um, more than anything else, the, the Dodgers were um, by far and away uh, my main interest. And um, uh, I, I still have some very vivid memories of uh, watching the Dodgers on, on television in the 1950s, and one game uh, stands out in particular, a game that uh, they scored 15 runs in the first inning against the Cincinnati Reds. Um, I, I think that was back in 1952 or 53. But um, uh, they, uh, other than that, the uh, the, the 1950s is uh, pretty much a blur. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> Julie, I, I'm wondering, you know, my perspective growing up, I was getting the Wonder Year soundtrack for Hanukkah when Yuki was coming out by Green Day. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think there's, I, I think Netflix has kind of helped with a better intergenerational uh, uh, connection to, to, you know, like, back, like, like think about the Weezer song in, like, 1995, uh, where they have a line, you know, ooh, ooh, you look just like Buddy Holly, ooh, and I'm married Tyler Moore. Sure. The kids listening to that knew what they were talking about, which sometimes doesn't seem to happen now. And again, I think that sir, there's now seem, there does seem to be some retro nostalgia. Um, but the question is, like, how do you, how do you keep these, these things alive? But my, my question really for you is, were you similarly raised on this, those, Era, that era of music and that era of, of TV, uh, similar to the way I was? Well, two things. I think we are looking back on those times of the quote-unquote Leave it to Beaver 1950s with a different lens now because something that I learned early on working in baseball and speaking to black players in baseball is that the experience and the quote-unquote good old days of baseball mm-hmm. meant something very different for a white player versus a black player versus a Latin player. So when you talk about those, you know, kind of perfect pastoral, like Levittown, you know, hi mom, darn, you know, that kind of stuff that leave it to beaver kind of life. I mean, there were, 
people who were not, there was a whole nother side of that that was certainly not that. And I think now people are realizing that that also needs to be, you know, attention must be paid, you know, in that respect. Um, Because I used to talk to black players. I mean, I'm trying to think, Edwin Jackson, Adam Jones, uh, Melvin Upton, who would talk very candidly about what their experience was like as a black player in certain hostile environments that as a white person, you not wouldn't necessarily think is a hostile environment. And that doesn't even include Boston. So I think to take that into consideration when we talk about those times, you know, is, is important to make note of that. As far as being brought up, I watching, um, the nostalgia for those times. I also grew up watching the wonder years. I absolutely love that show. <laughs> um, it was incredible. Um, the <laughs> Weezer album, green day dookie was the second CD I ever owned. And, um, oh, wow. I knew who buddy Holly was because of my parents. Cause dad, you, my dad was always really into doo-wop. So like I knew yeah. <laughs> like, I I knew names like Buddy Holly and like the you know those singers even though I wouldn't necessarily listen to them but oh oh but here's something for you okay so do you remember when Swingers came out like in the mid 90s early 90s yes yes okay it's it's so top five favorite California. movies of all time okay perfect so like here in California in Orange County there was this big swing star movement. Where like all these, that's where like the sort of straight edge, like the idea of like the straight edge would sort of came out of that, where like these kids that were like my age, that were like in middle school and high school would dress up in zoot suits and like go swing dancing at Disneyland. And like, I remember listening (laughs) to CDs of like swing music and dad, you would come into my room and you were like, my mother used to listen to this music. <laughs> like, it was like I was listening to like what what is it? Um, Dorsey and Tommy Tommy Dorsey. Like I'm trying to think of like the names right. of these music swing bands. Like yeah. I was listening to like swing music mm-hmm. in middle school, and because that was what was cool. And I would go vintage shopping, and I would find these 1950s. I actually still have them. I'm like literally, I'm at my parents' house right now, and I'm looking at them in my closet. I have these vintage 1950s dresses that were like these cute little housewife dresses that I would wear to high school and I wore saddle shoes and I would go to Disneyland and we would roll our hair and we would go swing dancing and it was very wholesome and it was very cute and like through that came like Gwen Stefani with no doubt and Safe Ferris and Real Big Fish (laughs) and the Deftones and uh, Deftones oh Mighty Mighty Boss Tones Right? Like, those were all born sort Daddy. of like, yes, Squirrel Nut Zippers. Okay, so Squirrel Nut Zippers started as a band on Main Street in Disneyland. Oh, my God. And that's how. I've never heard of them either. It came, oh, my God. Squirrel Nut Zippers in the afterlife. The, oh, my God. Okay, I'll send it to you. It's, I prob- it's, I, okay, all, perfect. Like, <laughs> it's great. Um, but, but now that you're making, I literally have not thought about this in like at least a, well, a long, a long damn time. But this was so funny because I, I definitely would had a taste for the nostalgia when it came to like all of that, like, you know, fifties revival and swingers and going swing dancing and like Mm -hmm. wearing the, 
the saddle shoes and all that. And also, like, The Wizard of Oz was my favorite movie growing up. You know, I, I know a lot of kids my age would, I don't know if that was really their favorite movie because it was certainly a lot older. But, um, yeah, I guess I, I was raised with a little nostalgia and <laughs> got into it. <laughs> well, so um... – uh, and that's that's basically the direction I want to go uh, last, uh, since we're we're getting close to the hour. Um, the Bronx is obviously was was a big center of doo wop, um, and mm-hmm. and uh, and also just you know I'm I'm writing about 1937 and 1941, so I'm I'm li- literally listening to that music right now, Julie. But uh, but in terms of doo wop, which came right after that music, kind of born out of some of the that what was being designed in the 30s and early 40s, what, what was that like? Did, you know, just experiencing, did you, did you experience people just singing on the, the corner? Uh, absolutely. Um, and, of course, coming from the Bronx, Dion and the Belmonts um, were, they were from Belmont Avenue in the Bronx. And um, just one second here. Um, and uh, they were uh, everyone's favorite, and um, uh, also uh, the hot tones and uh, the platters. So, and uh, I was actually uh, one of those who did sing on the street corner until the neighbors said, shut <laughs> up, so I did. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> um, but uh, do-up was a very, very important part of uh, – 50s culture uh, growing up in the Bronx. And, and by the way, Julie, yeah, and um, it's some of uh, pur- purists would not consider Buddy Holly doo-wop, but he was of the same era. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Sorry>. Rockabilly. <laughs> I, would, I, I would call him more kind of like rock rockabilly. Uh, uh, you know, right. he, he was more even uh, like more of a pop sound than some of the other rockabilly, which really had a punk flavor to it. Some of the early punk music is basically rockabilly. But my God, that would be a whole other hour to go down some of this, uh, that, that rabbit hole. And um, with the last two minutes, I, I first want to say thank you uh, to both of you for just welcoming me into your world uh, and, and helping me understand what you guys have gone through within this, this baseball and Brooklyn world that, that we love so dear. So first, Don, I, I greatly appreciate it. And what we always like to do uh, uh, is go into our last word. So whatever you haven't said that you'd like to say about both your experiences uh, with, with baseball as well as, you know, the Bronx and New York itself and Brooklyn, uh, go ahead. Okay, well, uh, my memories of growing up in the Bronx and being a Brooklyn Dodger fan are uh, all very positive. But as a historian, when I look back on the 1950s, um, those days were not as uh, glorious for uh, minorities, for uh, women. And so I I have more of a historical perspective on those days. But growing up uh, in the 50s, uh, it, it was wonderful to be a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And I appreciate you bringing that up as well, Don, and thank you again. Um, Julie, you know, you just mentioned it when, in terms of having a better perspective of the unconscious bias and, and the, the experiences of, of other people that don't necessarily have white skin. And the, it, 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 
I was just, we were just recently talking about this on the podcast about how, um, you know, first of all, it was a Negro League podcast, which just the inception of having a Negro League is, is in itself shows that there was a problem. Uh, and we were talking about, you know, the, the historian that I had on, uh, Phil Dixon. I, I believe it was Phil Dixon uh, that day, but it was also Michael Colon to give him a shout out. Um, it, it, they were talking, we were talking about how black people generally weren't even printed in, in main newspapers. Um, I was talking about like watching the Twilight Zone and the first time there was a black protagonist on it uh, was a, a boxer. It had to be an athlete. Um, there, there were literally no black people in the cast and, and there were probably no black people on the writing staff which is another thing uh, you don't have the experience brought into the actual shaping of the world, um, that, that's a problem. And that is where the acknowledgement of systemic racism is all we're requesting in looking at facts of this nature. Um, so I appreciate both of you mentioning that uh, at the end of here. And um, yeah, without further ado, Julie Alexandria, I will pass it over to you for your last word and shameless plug. Please go ahead. <laughs> well, to your point about the Twilight Zone, of which I'm a huge fan of the Rod Serling um, saga and uh, anthology, you know, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And the only black character was played by Billy Dee Williams as Lando Calrissian, and he was a traitor. He was a villain who turned in his friends for money. And, you know, it's like what, what universe were they living in that there was only one black person? And we're looking at it differently now. And obviously with the Mandalorian and with all the expanded universe, we're seeing a lot more um, characters of color, but still you look back and even as recent as the late seventies, early eighties to have one black character who did the egregious deed of turning in his friends um, is, is just pretty glaring. Um, but baseball is doing better. It's getting better. I think they're doing a better job. We at La Vida Baseball, that is our goal, is to spread awareness and to amplify those voices of the black and Latino players, um, of the black Latino players, the players that identify as black but come from Latin American countries. Um, you know, that's what we're here to do. And hopefully, you know, the Roberto Clemente Award will get a sponsorship. Right now it's been four years without a, spon a title sponsor. And that's crazy when you think of the amount of energy that Latin players have injected into the world of baseball. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, that's the big struggle is to keep baseball relevant for a younger generation and to, quote, unquote, let the kids play. And the Latin players have a lot to do with that. The colored players have a lot to do with that. So I think that is the future of baseball. And I'm just hoping that it will be recognized and celebrated moving forward. And we certainly celebrate it on Love Eater Baseball, which you can check out. We do a live show every Monday and Wednesday um, at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern at lavitabaseball.com. And we also stream on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Excellent. I uh, thank you both for joining us today. And this has been such a pleasure. And I, I look forward to having you guys back another time, you know, I, I, I think it's certainly that we've opened a can of worms of conversation with this one. What a, what a foundation. So uh, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate it. This was so fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. 
Sorry, sorry there. Don, go ahead. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just saying, it's, it's my pleasure to be with you this morning. Same, and uh, Happy New Year, Lashana uh, Tovah, to everybody out there celebrating the New Year, the Jewish New Year. And uh, we thank you for listening today on the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast. Have a great weekend. Take care.